welcome to the Caring Greatly podcast, a podcast for leaders who seek to transform healthcare with humanity. Dr. Cinda Rushton is a professor of clinical ethics at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics and School of Nursing and co-chairs Johns Hopkins Hospital's Ethics Committee and Consultation Service. In 2016, she co-led a national collaborative State of the Science Initiative, Transforming Moral Distress into Moral Resilience in Nursing, and co-chaired the American Nurses Association's Professional Issues Panel that created a call to action, Exploring Moral Resilience Toward a Culture of Ethical Practice. She was a member of the National Academies of Medicine, Science and Engineering Committee that produced the report, Taking Action Against Clinician Burnout, a systems approach to professional well-being. She is a member of the American Nurses Association Center for Ethics and Human Rights Ethics Advisory Board and American Nurse Foundation Wellbeing Initiative Advisory Board. She's the editor and author of Moral Resilience, Transforming Moral Suffering in Healthcare. Dr. Rushton is a Hastings Center Fellow and chair of the Hastings Center Fellows Council and a fellow at the American Academy of Nursing. In this episode, Dr. Rushton and I talk about the concept of values discordance and what happens when a person perceives that their personal or professional values are out of alignment with their organization's values. We look at the ways values play out in an organization through leadership, decision-making, and budgeting. We dig into the link between values and moral injury and how ethics considerations need to be a central component of leaders' well-being and leadership strategies. And Dr. Rushton lays out a structure for how leaders can safeguard ethics and values through leadership and safety infrastructure to support expectations and accountability, practice integration, continuous improvement, and competency building. Dr. Cinda Rushton is a leader who cares greatly. Welcome back, Dr. Rushton. It's so good to see you again. Great to be here, Liz. Uh, the last time we spoke, we spoke about the mix between uh, needing to have well-being and support at the individual level and organizational change. And we didn't delve into ethics and, and values and the sort of broader context for that well-being. And I'm excited to dig in today because you and I have had a lot of conversations about this and I, it gets into some really interesting ground. Uh, and where I want to start today is a study you shared with me that was recently released looking at values, concordance, and clini clinician well-being. Can you summarize that, that study? Well, this is a really interesting study that was, excuse me, that was done uh, by our colleagues in New Zealand. And what they looked at was um, how values discordance, you know, the gap between what we profess and what we actually do, how it impacted some key outcomes. And what they found was when there is discordance between personal and organizational values, it predicted lower compassion ability, which means the clinician's perceptions of their um, ability to express compassion. It did not, though, change their um, compassion competence, which means in the midst of the, all of this, the clinicians still perceive themselves as having the capacities for compassion, but they couldn't express it. Mm. What was important also is that it reduced job satisfaction, it increased burnout and absenteeism, and um, intention for early retirement. 
So what this study really highlights, I think, is an area that we have tended to not give much attention to, is there's a cost to that discrepancy. Mm. And it's not only a cost to the people delivering care, but arguably to the people receiving care. Because if clinicians' capacity to express compassion is reduced in these environments where they feel there is a disconnect between why they're there, what their professional values are, what they're meant to do, and the organization's values or how they prioritize them creates stress and distress, that there's a huge cost to everyone, including the organization in terms of their organizational outcomes. Let's dig into that because if you look at most healthcare organizations, the expressed values are around compassion and great uh, outcomes and experience, really sort of triple aim and increasingly quadruple aim sort of focused. And yet this discordance is pretty common, at least in the conversations that I have with frontline folks, where there's almost an us-them mentality of feeling that the leaders in the organization are running by an utterly different set of standards and don't understand what's happening on the front line. So where does this values discordance perception, if not reality, and perhaps reality, come from? Well, I think it's easy to talk about our values. It's much more difficult to live them. And I think that's part of what um, clinicians at the front line are experiencing. And arguably, I would suspect that there's some leaders who are also feeling that kind of discordance and the, the stress that it creates because our, we are inherently oriented toward integrity to be yeah. beings. And when we cannot act in accordance with our values, it causes stress in our bodies, in our hearts, and in our minds because we're trying to find a way to make sense out of something that doesn't make sense. Right. Because, you know, we, we really do strive to, to be whole. And so I think part of, part of the challenge is the investment that organizations make in putting in place structures and processes that hold them accountable for living their values rather than mm -hmm. talking about them. So, for example, if we say our three uh, core values in our organization are respect for all persons, fairness and equity for all, and compassion, then those three values ought to be the template by which every decision is measured. Mm. It's not an afterthought. It's the first step. How does this decision uphold the values of respect or fairness? or compassion. And if it is undermining it systematically, then it's go back to the drawing board and figure out how we can reduce the cost to the things we say are core to our work. When I think about those three values, <clears throat> those are the three values that universally clinicians would say are important to them. Yeah. And they're reflected in our codes of ethics. And so when there's that mismatch or the perceived mismatch, then it begins to erode our investment in our work, in our 
organizations. And what we've been seeing is it contributes to people deciding to either leave their jobs or leave their profession. So when you talk about these organi organizational structures, and I, I love that idea of using the values as filters on decisions, and it's it's still a little bit abstract, yeah. right? It's and and you know, healthcare is notoriously complex. The the kinds of weighed weighing weighted factors and trade offs and things are 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 pretty intense, and often even if those conversations are happening at the the leadership level, which I often see them do, they don't always feel that way at the front line. So how do you bridge that divide between what can be perceived as a non-ethical organizational decision that was in fact run through this filter of ethics and the perception at the front lines uh, of, of what the reality is? It's a really great question, Liz. And, um, during the pandemic, we did research um, looking at the relationship of moral resilience, uh, moral injury, and organizational effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And what we saw was that um, when we had higher levels of organizational effectiveness, we had lower levels of moral injury. And I think what that also led to was the secondary analysis where we looked at uh, two qualitative questions that we asked on the survey. And we <clears throat> asked people, you know, what is it, what else do you want us to know? And in analyzing those data, the large majority of people who responded to those two questions had clinically significant moral injury scores. And when we analyzed their responses, it tracked back to a common theme of broken trust. And so part of the uh, response has to be that we have trustworthy, transparent communication. And what I mean by that is we will always have to make hard decisions. It is inevitable that we have to make trade-offs that involve important values. But what's often missing is the um, explanation of the process that a group or leadership went through to determine what was the right threshold of compromise that was acceptable. Mm. And to explain that to people, because when a decision is just announced in a very transactional way, often what people are looking for is an acknowledgement of the consequences of that decision on them and their work and their values. So for example, you know, during COVID, we had to make hard decisions about allocating resources. Right. And in doing that, we had to be able to explain that we are prioritizing serving more people so that we can reduce deaths. And that's going to mean that there are some people who we would normally be able to treat that we won't be able to do so in the same way that we've always done it. Now, we don't, we wish that weren't the case, but under these circumstances, <clears throat> that's a consequence that we have to live with. And we recognize that that will create a conflict for you at the bedside. 
and we are going to invest in resources to support you in that process because we know it will cause stress and distress for you. So I think, yeah, I, I, I just want to jump in because I think that linking of the resource to the decision is also critical, right? I, I can't point to an organization that didn't create some of those resources, right? But there is also sometimes this perception that we're putting this resource out, first of all, because we're, we're blaming you and putting the personal responsibility on. And second, by not linking it, it, I think by linking it to that explicit impact of a decision whose trade-offs were carefully considered, I think the resource takes on a whole new feeling and meaning for people. Do you agree? I suspect it probably does because, you know, the narrative, I think we also have to be very, very aware of the narrative that gets created when there's a gap in the communication. People create their own narrative. Right. And the narrative that got created is this is just a Band-Aid to make us all feel better for a really bad decision. Right. And it, in fact... What we saw is organizations really tried to intensify many of those resources. The reality is that the the environment was so uh, stretched that many people couldn't take advantage of some of the things that were created. So yes, that leads to another piece of how we actually live these values by involving the people affected by the decisions in the in the process and in the solutions that will help mitigate the negative consequences. Delve into that a little bit a little bit more because I mean what I'm hearing is sort of shared governance and co-creation that's that's where I'm assuming you're going to but often those are talked about more for efficiency and stickiness of of change and not necessarily through the ethics frame. So I, I'm curious not only how you co-create with people on on the ethics front making it safe for them to speak up about those, but then how you, um, how you create, I'm, I'm not sure how, how to ask this, how you even create this, the, um, the accountability to, to, to stand with that, to not dismiss. I've been in a lot of, um, of co-creation processes where certain things were just left off the table, where the staff said, what we need in order for this to feel safe is more, more people. I said, well, we can't have more people, so what else can we do, right? Like, and in an ethics framework, that would shut me down. How do you do that in a safe way? Well, I think part of it is there has to be a commitment to ask the hard questions. And just like we have adopted in many organizations, what's the next thing that's going to harm a patient? Mm -hmm. We need to include in our dashboard a question about, What's the next thing that will erode our values in this organization? And to have a monitoring process where the dashboard includes those kinds of questions and the allocation of a portion of the budget to develop and maintain a robust ethics infrastructure where you're actually monitoring and detecting the patterns in the organization that actually are eroding those values. Mm. So it's it, it's being intentional in the same way that we have been intentional with other things like safety and just culture and high reliability organizations. These are all related concepts right. that include this values piece. 
but often uh, we struggle with how to make that, um, you know, operational. And I think it's it's stepping back and using that that frame of how are we living our values as a, a an accountability expectation for everybody in the organization to be able to raise those questions of help me understand how how we are actually upholding this value of respect for the dignity of all people when we have certain people in this organization who have salaries that don't allow them to even pay their basic right you know so we have to also challenge our sacred cows and that means that um we've got to be willing to be uncomfortable you know and denial of it of these value conflicts is not a sustainable strategy any longer it is something that has to be addressed now in this current healthcare environment yeah i think when we're seeing so many people leave and and so much i know i know you've been studying things like moral injury and and ethics for you know for a long time since before that well before the pandemic and it feels like the pandemic has sort of risen it to the top both by amplifying the constraints in the environment and and some of those decisions and um also putting people in places where the trade-offs were um were more real and apparent right and 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 immediate and i you know i'm curious if you're seeing i'm i'm hearing more of this in the abstract but i'm not necessarily seeing um this changes in organizational structure that would make this happen so are are you seeing a doubling down? Are you hearing among your colleagues this um, increased awareness turn into a change in practice? And if so, what does that look like? Well, I I think like many things, there are islands of excellence, but I don't think there's been widespread adoption of a new way of thinking. To be honest, Liz, I think what we're being called to do is a major paradigm shift in our thinking. Mm-hmm. And how we design healthcare, not based on uh, the budget, because I do believe the budget is the most important ethical document in an organization because it reflects what we care about, what we prioritize. And when that budget does not reflect our values, there's discordance. Yeah. And so we've got to challenge the mindset that there's only one way to balance the budget. And it cannot any longer be on the back of the people who are delivering care. We have to come up with new ways of thinking about a budget that actually is reflective of the values we profess. And so, you know, in the budgetary process, do we use our value screen mm. to ask the questions of who will be benefited and who will be harmed by this decision and how will they be harmed? And is there anything that we can do to mitigate that? Can we explain this decision publicly to our community in a way that will have integrity? Those are the kinds of questions that I think we've got to start asking because 
if we continue with what we've been doing, I think that the handwriting is on the wall. Our health care workforce is not going to participate. Yeah. And, you know, it's a day of reckoning in a way of saying, okay, well, you know, how as leaders can we create the kinds of support systems that help us to discern what that right balance is, to support us in having to make hard decisions and help us to engage the people affected by them in new and meaningful ways. Are there forums where these discussions are taking place among leaders? I'm thinking about, I know you're working with IHI right now. Um, I think, you know, for this transformation to happen, it almost needs to happen kind of universally. You mentioned pockets of excellence, and maybe that will lead to a, a filtering out, right? Where, where talent and, and compassionate clinicians go and they can thrive. And so those are the organizations that succeed. But there's a there's a geographic component also where you know people not everybody can pick up and move not everybody can have that kind of of job shift so where where are you seeing the places where leaders can can find support for this kind of change because anytime you're pushing against the status quo you know it's challenging you've got to get your board on board you've got to get your teams on board you have to have leaders that are on board you have to maybe change um, structures of how people are held accountable and compensated. Where are you seeing support for this? Well, I think it starts, <clears throat> I think it really starts with um, leaders themselves. You know, this is an inside-out process to start with. We, we have to get ourselves in the space where we are integrity with our own values first. Yeah. And, and then to engage in a collective process of how do we, how do we actually do this together? I think that um, the program that we are uh, starting this week and uh, leadership for uh, well-being in or healthcare organizations um, is a start because what it does is it begins to connect the values as the foundation with the mechanisms and the processes of, of improvement in a way that keeps values at the center. And, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens differently in this framing with values has always been part of the IHI framework, but we're going to dig a little deeper into that. We're going to have people actually reflect on their own values, their professional values, and the organization's professed values to try to detect where are their discrepancies. And where might there be opportunities to address those discrepancies as you begin to roll out a well-being agenda? And I think that, you know, we got to start somewhere. And I'm always a fan of, you know, what is your sphere of influence? Right. Um, you know, we we tend to think, and I think this is also part of why there's the us and them kind of thinking, is... If you're a person at the front line, you're often thinking, well, there's nothing I can do to change anything. Right. And if you're the leader, you're feeling the responsibility of having to change everything. <laughs> right. And so, and to know the answers, which, you know, we're going to discover them uh, as we move through this process. So what I'm 
hoping we can create is is really a fully engaged process where everybody sees themselves as part of the solution mm. and as part of the future. To think about what is it that clinicians at the front line can do not to tolerate unethical or, or value discordant situations, but rather to enable them to restore their agency so they can choose how they want to respond, how they can see the opportunities that are in front of them and how they practice themselves and how they are able then to be part of a voice in their organization that is not blamed and shamed and discounted, but listened to mm. and, and acted on so that they feel they have a voice. Now, on the other end of that, I think leaders need support to listen in a wholehearted, mindful way instead of uh, feeling the need to fix whatever problem has been brought mm -hmm. to them, but to actually hold whatever it is people need to share and to use it as an opportunity for greater inquiry. You know, underneath that concern, like staffing, what's really at stake? I think what's really at stake in the staffing discussion is this discordance yeah. between how we are trained and are committed to practice and the way we are actually practicing. And when we can say that out loud, it's a different kind of conversation than numbers. Right. Because all we're talking about now is numbers. Right. And and so shifting that narrative and the conversation is a really important leverage point for change. And it's in a way simple, but it's not easy to do. No. No, but I'm I'm picturing the difference in we just need more people to a, a discussion that says in order to practice in a certain way this is what needs to happen which opens the door to to multiple solutions some of which might mean different people or shifting of responsibilities yes. within teams that exist or or those sorts of things. It, it's a fundamentally less antagonistic yeah. conversation centered around those those values. It's not it's not personal. It's not I need this and you won't give it to me and you're asking for that and I don't have the capacity to give it to you, you know, because leaders function under constraints as well. So I really appreciate that. As we come to a close here, we've covered so much ground. I want to give you a chance to to sort of structure things for people. If you think about the key areas, if if we're moving into this new paradigm, starting with that self-reflection of personal values, professional values, organizational values, and moving into building organizational competency and capacity, what are the areas that leaders should be focusing on? Well, I think, you know, Part of this is how we create expectations. That's part of building trust and accountability. And, and so it's putting in place, um, you know, the commitment to actually shift to a values-based framework uh, in all stakeholders. So board of trustees, uh, you know, C-suite, all the way to the person that, you know, you meet when you come in the front door. Right. Um, and really having a monitoring process, just like you do for safety events, but having a monitoring process where we can detect where these value 
compromises are happening and the discordance that it produces. We've got to also think about what an ethics infrastructure looks like. So how do we have mechanisms to address uh, people's concerns? How do, we, how do we recognize the patterns in the organization before they become a crisis? You know, and an example of that is, you know, one one place where there's a lot of value discordance is around goals of care for certain patients in certain populations that are chronic. So having a way to make it possible to recognize those and paying attention to and being vigilant about a, a, a system where we can report these concerns in a safe and respectful and responsive manner. Um, and in, included in that, I think, is is also paying attention to um, how we have mechanisms for people to conscientiously object or refuse to participate in things that actually violate their personal and professional values. And to do that in a way that is both fair and transparent, but also in, it allows people to share uh, right. those concerns. I, I think another piece, Liz, is to model, you know, our improvement and prevention strategies that we've learned from safety, the uh, just culture frameworks, the high reliability organizations, so that we truly are co-creating system change. Uh, into that process and to have more resources for clinicians who are dealing with these issues to address them, you know, um, to create a, a kind of um, ethics engineering <laughs> uh, in into the system rather than this add-on thing that we, you know, that we use when we're in a crisis. Um, and I think the last thing really is... Um, competency and capacity building so that everyone in the organization from the C-suite uh, to the front line have the um, skills and and tools that they need to be able to address these challenges. And in my work, that includes recognizing the symptoms of moral suffering that goes along with this discordance and not just labeling it as burnout, but right. really, truly understanding that underneath that are are such important um, commitments and obligations that clinicians carry that to overlook them causes harm. Yeah. And that we have to really create systems to address that more intentionally and more specifically. I think that is a very powerful and comprehensive set of things that, that people can focus on. And what I like best about it is it's not necessarily fundamentally new infrastructure. There's definitely some new pieces in there, right? Having the ability to consult, having structured mechanisms to conscientiously object, but a lot of it fits in the safety frameworks and cultures that organizations have been building around patient safety. It just opens that frame to also include team member safety and well-being, including that ethical, um, potential for moral injury and and ethical quandary that, as you said, is is in some ways unavoidable. I mean, there are pieces that we can put in place that make sure that we're not um, intentionally or or uh, callously putting people into those those situations. But 
clinical care is hard. Clinical decision-making is hard. So if we don't have this as the foundation for the, the core organizational things, it becomes um, almost inevitable that it's going to um, erupt at the front line and cause this kind of crisis that we're seeing today. So I really appreciate your thinking on this. You know, Liz, it's interesting. You know, as we've thought about safety, we, we've often thought about it, physical safety, psychological safety, and I would like to add moral safety yeah. to that. The dignitary harms to our patients when we cannot provide care that is respectful and compassionate is a harm. And that ought to be on our dashboard. It also ought to include the harms, the dignitary moral harms to the clinicians who are dedicated to providing care. And I think that addition to our framework would begin to help us to, to recognize that these kinds of um, what I would call moral residue are, are costly to every single person in the organization and that it's worth the investment because I do believe that when we uh, practice in alignment with our values, the finances will follow. It's, it's, it is turning that mindset upside down and thinking that, um, you know, this area of value alignment is, is sort of nice to have, but not necessary. I would say it is absolutely fundamental to the work that we're doing and to achieve our goals for everyone. I completely agree with you. And I look forward to, I'm sure we'll have a future episode where we talk about these transformations and how they're taking root in multiple places because you are a force to be reckoned with. Dr. Russian, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. Thank you so much, Liz, for inviting me. If you enjoyed this episode of the Caring Greatly podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or Spotify. For links related to Dr. Rushton's episode, please visit vocera.com slash podcast and click on her episode. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of Vocera, now part of Stryker. This is Liz Bohm, executive strategist at Stryker and host of the Caring Greatly podcast. Thank you for caring greatly.